This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. If you follow me on Twitter at P-E-S-C-A-M-I, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? We will take it easy on the memes. It's Wednesday, June 24th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I would like to thank Representative Louis Gohmert. It is hard to know how to perform attention triage these days. Gotta check so much. The corona counts, the Trump-Biden polls, police reform, and apparently there's a Sahara dust plume coming our way. Well, it will start to reach the Gulf of Mexico and along the southern states. Yeah, you're gonna see a haze in the sky. So yeah, dust plume, plus there's Bolton, baseball, and bar. So when Donald Ayer, the former deputy attorney general under George H.W. Bush, was testifying before Congress about Donald Barr, I wasn't watching until the representative from Texas began acting out. And Barr's own role in the events in Lafayette Park come quickly to mind. Hear that banging in the background? Not a metronome. Although you could argue that the Republican from Texas is keeping time with the 1850s, Gomert just began banging on the table because, well, he had his reasons. He was a little upset over timing, and also maybe he didn't get his snack. Blood sugar issue could be. Here was his explanation when an objection was raised by a fellow member of the committee. To stop the disruption of this meeting. I can't hear this witness. This is a very important witness. Yeah, well, he's way beyond and the chair. Has and if the there are no rules about when people can the talk, there's no not. rules about when you can make noise. The gentleman makes the. So, in hearing about the attorney general, the chief rule enforcer in the U.S. ignoring the rules, Gomert sought to make his point like a monkey with a stick. But at least it drew my attention, and now it has yours. So let's. Dig in on what the former George H.W. Bush Deputy Attorney General, by the way, Barr took his job, succeeded him in that position. Let's hear what Ayers said. He said, what's happening now is much worse than what happened in Watergate, much worse. It's across the board. It's a systemic effort to undo the checks that were put in place in Watergate and others that existed in the Constitution, and we need to do something about it. He said that he's never been as concerned about the future of the rule of law in the U.S. as he is right now. And he also said this. And I am here because I believe that William Barr poses the greatest threat in my lifetime to our rule of law and to public trust in it. That is because he does not believe in its core principle that no person is above the law. And now I know. And now you know. And I would like to thank Louis Gohmert for making sure we all know. On the show today, progress, real tangible progress on a pressing racial issue is happening. Things are getting better. I'm here to tell you what that is in the spiel. But first, the New York Times has Joe Biden ahead of Donald Trump by 14 points. A lead like that, if it holds up and translates to an electoral college walloping, might not just be satisfying to the Trump removal project, it might be necessary. Because there's a growing concern that Trump might not leave if he loses. 
I have to admit this concern was one that I didn't think was all that legitimate, but then I began to wonder about it, and I couldn't find too many obvious rebuttals. Why it couldn't happen? I read a book, a book written by my next guest, Lawrence Douglas. It was fairly convincing that there may, in fact, be some substance to what I once dismissed as a manifestation of free-floating anxiety characteristic of this era. So here to discuss his thesis and answer the question he himself poses in his book is Professor Lawrence Douglas, author of Will He Go? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I first heard it suggested in a, I thought, somewhat ironic way on the Bill Maher show by Michael Moore. And I have to tell you, I don't take much of what Michael Moore says to heart, but it was hard to dismiss out of hand. What if Donald Trump loses the election, but just refuses to go? Okay, that's a what if scenario. I wrote a book on what if scenarios. It's not really so important to dwell on it. But the thing was, there was no good answer. What if he does decide to go? The answer often depends on the will of the D.C. Police Department. We're watching them in action over the last few days. But what are the remedies, the constitutional remedies, the legal remedies? Will he go is the question. This is a new book by Lawrence Douglas. He's a professor of political science at Amherst. Trump and the looming election meltdown in 2020. That uh, tips Professor Douglas's hand a little bit. Hello. Welcome to The Gist. Oh, my pleasure. So it's a looming meltdown, eh? I mean, it certainly could be. The idea of a perfect storm has kind of turned into a little bit of a tired cliche, but there are a whole lot of things that are coming together right now, which really predict that we could have kind of the worst election crisis in our nation uh, since really 1876 and this kind of famous Hills-Tilden election, which um, some of your listeners probably remember from, you know, studying American history. Yeah, the Hayes-Tilden election is crazy because it's, I don't know, I guess because America went on, but you have a great phrase in your book that it was a disaster averted by a catastrophe. Explain that. So uh, with the Hayes-Tilden election of um, 1876, you had this really kind of unusual situation in which you had three different states, uh, Florida, Louisiana, and uh, South Carolina. They all couldn't really get their act together as to who won the Electoral College vote in those states. And the election hung in the balance. And what you had then is you had these three different states all submitting contradictory electoral certificates to Congress. That is, Florida sent one certificate saying Hayes won the state, and Florida sent another certificate saying Tilden won the state. And this arrived in Congress. Congress couldn't figure out who the next uh, president was going to be. And this really carried on right up until the time, right before inauguration. The whole thing wasn't settled until two days before inauguration day. And in fact, the then president, President Ulysses S. Grant, was so nervous 
about the prospect of two different people claiming to be the commander in chief of the United States, that he actually contemplated declaring martial law. And what I mean by saying that a catastrophe was averted by a disaster, had there been no political resolution, it really could have been catastrophic for the country. You could have really had two different people claiming to be the rightful uh, chief executive of the country. What ended up happening, and there was a political compromise in which Tilden, the Democrat, agreed to uh, concede in exchange for the end of Reconstruction in the South. And that was a disaster, in particular for the African-American population of the United States. And so, in a sense, the parties worked out a political compromise, but they did so at the expense of uh, African-Americans. And the United States obviously has a long history of that kind of compromise that is one that is arrived at on the backs of African-Americans. So troubling resolution to that problem. Let us not think that this couldn't happen. It already did happen, and we almost don't remember it. And the fixes, the legislative fixes after this were totally inadequate. Um, I guess they thought it was adequate, but it was an example of the system being laid bare. There was no good mechanism to solve this disputed election. And then going forward, there was still no good mechanism, and that's the situation we deal with today. Yeah, that's exactly right. Congress was well aware that, oh my God, we almost uh, had an electoral meltdown catastrophe in 1876. We better make sure this never happens again. We better figure out a way to deal with this eventuality should states submit competing electoral certificates in some future election. And so they spent the better part of a decade uh, trying to figure out some kind of legislative solution. And in a manner that's not atypical for Congress, uh, when they finally did come up with a uh, solution, it was woefully, woefully deficient. And that is this uh, Electoral Count Act of 1887. And you might think, oh, why are we concerned with an Electoral Count Act from 1887? And the reason is that that is the law that would continue to trouble that today would troubleshoot any kind of problem that would emerge in 2020. And the Electoral Act of 1887, I I don't care how proficient you think your reading comprehension is. I, I, I challenge you to read this law and make any sense of its provisions. It really provides no guidance to Congress for how to deal with this problem. And worst of all, it leaves the solution of the problem in Congress's hands. That is, instead of establishing some kind of nonpartisan, neutral, let's say, electoral commission that would troubleshoot the problem, it leaves it in the hands of political branch of government, namely Congress. And they're meant to kind of walk our way out of some kind of electoral catastrophe and that can't happen when you have a hyperpartisan politics like we have today, which was really not dissimilar to what you saw in 1876. And if that outcome holds, then Biden becomes the next president. And that whole phenomenon of blue shift is something that has been kind of well-established by election experts. And Trump himself is very aware of this phenomenon, Mike. And I think that explains, at least in part, why he is so aggressively now trying to challenge the validity and legitimacy of mail-in ballots, because he, in a sense, is already creating the groundwork for claiming any post-election defeat as the product of a hoax. 
Another catastrophe uh, rests on the fact that we don't have a national election system. They're all state and local systems. So a hacker would just have to target the weakest among them in a swing state to have great effect. Another catastrophe rests on the faithless elector problem that's still allowed to happen. You also point out, I didn't even realize this, that if a voter, if an elector is bribed, that elector can be punished and uh, jailed. But the actual bribed vote, there is no mechanism to change that. Isn't that great? Just a couple of weeks ago, the Supreme Court heard a oral argument in a case about the constitutionality of laws that would punish or replace faithless or rogue electors. And it seemed pretty clear from that oral argument that the Supreme Court is going to uphold those kinds of laws. But there are a lot of states, only uh, there are 18 states that don't have any of those laws at all. And some of them are like in our swing states, like Pennsylvania, assuming a very, very tight contest. You could imagine the whole, these faithless electors completely gumming up the works and they might gum up the works as a result of, again, we can sort of make it up, but it's not a crazy uh, scenario as a result of being, uh, I don't know, blackmailed by some kind of uh, foreign adversary who has um, dirt on them. Yeah, we're just flat out bribed and no mechanism. <laughs> okay, couple questions. A lot of prominent Democratic uh, politicians and adherents are raising this issue. You know, Joe Biden himself has made intimations that he's not sure that if Trump loses, he'll even go. Nancy Pelosi has said this. Does this help or hurt the cause? I mean, you would say it would help the cause. They're speaking truth or truth as they perceive it. But perhaps it could just give the impression, oh, this is what they wanted you to believe all along, or this is the fictional scenario that they were spinning out before it even happened. I don't know. Maybe there's a case to be made that actually coming from the mouth of Trump's rival, presupposing an election where he doesn't leave isn't helpful. Yeah, I I, I kind of hear that as well. And you don't want to get into this kind of chicken little phenomenon. On the other hand, it, it's, it's one of the real dilemmas of the uh, Trump presidency, because you feel that you have to call him out. And yet you don't want to say that, well, the cost of I, I don't want to avoid calling him out because the cost of doing so simply plays into the narrative of his uh, supporters and of Fox News that, oh, here's everyone going crazy and overreacting and trying to Mm -hmm. cast this president, you know, trying to overturn the Democratic election by casting this guy as some kind of rogue authoritarian. But let's also recall that it's it's not just Nancy Pelosi who's warning that uh, Trump might uh, reject his defeat. I mean, in 2016, he basically told the nation that. I mean, this was in that, uh, you know, that notorious moment in the final debate with uh, Hillary Clinton when uh, the moderator, Chris Matthews, said, so, uh, Mr. Trump, would you abide by the uh, electoral outcome if uh, you lose? And he wouldn't say that he would abide by it. You know, he said, I'll keep you in suspense. And I think even at that moment, Chris yeah. Matthews was like he was stunned. He was like, well, well wait a second. You're, you're basically challenging the norm of peaceful succession. Uh, we've had that in place since uh, George Washington left the presidency, you know, 220 years ago. And Trump still wouldn't back off from it. You know, he was like, oh, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll look at it at the time. Yeah. One of the two men in that exchange was ousted. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well put. Um, <laughs> Very well put. Do you think impeachment and non-removal, non-conviction emboldened Trump or... Did, was it still a bit of civic hygiene that needed to be done? I would probably say both. 
I would say it was an absolutely necessary thing for the Democrats to do. And at the same time, it probably left him even stronger. You know, if you kind of look at the continuing attacks that he has launched now against these inspector generals, you know, these people who are meant to provide oversight within the various branches of the executive branch, he's worked now pretty aggressively to remove them. He seems to have in the person of William Barr, an attorney general who's really willing to act almost as his, um, you know, personal advocate and henchman. And, um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's again, it's one of the, the very disturbing aspects that I kind of mentioned a little bit earlier that it's not Trump alone who could create mayhem in uh, 2020. Uh, he would have to have his uh, accomplices and they are uh, Republican lawmakers. And the fact that Republican lawmakers absolutely refuse to hold him to account for what I, I think, you know, looks like pretty transparently removable conduct. It's just another feature of the very, very disturbed state of politics in the United States right now. Do you think that dynamic would obtain with uh, the sort of um, actual election chicanery we're talking about? I wonder, because like, you know, you hear Jeff Flake talking about if it were a secret ballot, he presumes some large percentage of his former fellow Republican senators would have voted to remove him. I wonder if it really comes down to a couple of senators who value the republic above their own narrow interests, would we really, I mean, how stupid am I? I'm saying I still think they do the right thing. I'm not actually saying that, but I just wonder if you think that if it comes down to that, there is no reason to think the Republicans wouldn't roll over and keep rolling with Trump for four more years. First of all, I think the point that you raised is an incredibly important one. And I have to say that um, I think you and I share a similar kind of uh, political idealism or naivety, however you want to uh, describe it. So I continue to believe that, yes, there must be people of some principles. Um, well, maybe it's not, not maybe it's not even that. Maybe it's just that the Republicans would figure, look, we had them for four years and in the next four years, it's going to be fractious. It's going to be weak. We can help ourselves by obviously um, upholding the correct results of an election. I don't know. Maybe it's not naivete. Maybe there's some realism that would come into play. I think if it were the case that Trump transparently loses and then we are almost in kind of, let's say, a seven days in May sort of scenario where he's just kind of trying to barricade himself in the Oval Office, uh, surrounded by a phalanx of rogue Secret Service agents. Do I think the Republican lawmakers are going to try to protect him under those circumstances? My answer is emphatically not. They will not protect him under those circumstances. But that's not the, the dangerous situation which I imagine playing out. Uh, you know, if you have something like what I described earlier, let's say this blue shift, and you have a very concerted effort on the part of not simply Trump, but also uh, Fox and other members of the right wing media trying to make arguments that there was all sorts of irregularities in the voting. in let's say, I don't know, Michigan or Pennsylvania that supply us with at least some that create that sow the seeds of doubt as to whether all those mail-in ballots really can be trusted and you have dual certificates that are submitted to Congress, and then suddenly uh, Republicans in Senate have to decide, well, are they going to recognize Biden as the winner in Pennsylvania or Michigan, or are they going to recognize Trump? I could easily, under those circumstances, imagine them siding with Trump. If the outcome of the election is very clear and he's just engaged in some kind of 
incredibly petulant and self-destructive act of insisting that he won, then I don't think they will stand by him. But I think if the results lend themselves to contestation, then I think that's a, a very dangerous situation. Worrying that this would happen in 2016, the Obama administration put together some sort of plan to rebut it. What was that plan? And do you think it would have been successful? So in 2016, the Obama, you know, as you said, the Obama administration was sufficiently concerned that he would, as he basically telegraphed in the last uh, debate, that he would reject an electoral defeat as a result of hoax, that they had put together kind of a dream team of uh, Republican uh, statespersons who would all kind of uh, almost deliver like public service announcements saying that uh, the election functioned in a democratic, legitimate fashion. These are people like Condoleezza Rice or Colin Powell, people with very high uh, standing uh, within the uh, Republican establishment. And again, but we have to recall that was to deal with the sort of the threat to the country that would emerge from a candidate challenging his uh, defeat. You know, now we have an incumbent president. That's a very, very different situation and arguably a much more uh, volatile one. Lawrence Douglas is a professor of law, jurisprudence, and social thought at Amherst College. His author of Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Election Meltdown in 2020. Thanks so much. Oh, thanks so much, Mike. It was a real pleasure talking with you. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now, the spiel. The term progressive gets thrown around a lot these days. Of course, the phrase thrown around a lot these days gets thrown around a lot these days. But sometimes it's just fun to start a statement with a big, juicy cliche, like gorging yourself on scrumptious dinner rolls before a particularly sophisticated main course. Anyway, 
A couple of quote-unquote progressive candidates won their primaries for House of Representatives yesterday in the states of New York and Virginia. And while progressive might mean to some dismantling a statue of Ulysses S. Grant or hounding an earnest researcher out of the profession or calling for the ouster of Poetry Foundation executives who are only a little forceful in their condemnation of racism, not forceful enough, or even failing to call the cops after car thieves point a gun at you, All are called progressives. The progressives who won or are ahead in Virginia's 5th and New York's 16th and 17th have actually achieved something truly progressive. So demographically, Virginia's 5th district is 75% white and 21% black. New York's 17th is 50% white, 11% black, 20% Hispanic. The 16th is actually minority majority because of a sizable Hispanic portion, but black citizens only make up 16% of that district. But in each of those districts, a black man has been selected as the Democratic nominee for Congress. Official results, again, still pending, lots of absentee ballots. But there are big leads in the polls by Jamal Brown, Mondaire Jones, and Cameron Webb. If each of these candidates beats their Republican challenger, which is a decent bet in Virginia and an extremely good bet in New York history will be made. Webb will become the first black physician to serve as a voting member of Congress. Jones will be the first gay black man in Congress, although we should say Richie Torres, who is ahead in New York's 15th congressional district, also gay and black. But for all the history being made in these races, especially Virginia's 5th and New York's 17th, what I want to note is that there are instances in which a majority white electorate is backing a black candidate. And up until very recently, this wasn't just rare, it was all but unknown. Maybe it doesn't seem that way because Barack Obama was elected president in a majority white nation, right? Yes, he was. But when Barack Obama was elected to the Senate back in 2004, he was not just the only black senator, he was the only black official of any kind to win statewide office in a white majority state, which is to say all of them Hawaii, other than four black Democratic politicians. They were Georgia's labor commissioner and attorney general, Illinois secretary of state, and North Carolina's auditor. There are hundreds of statewide elections. Five men, actually all men in this case, five male Democrats who were black won. There are a few black Republicans, statewide office holders back then. It's a different dynamic. We're talking about a black politician winning the support of white voters. It almost never happened. It didn't budge much even after Obama was elected. In 2015, 88% of African Americans in the U.S. House of Representatives represented majority minority districts. The political science professor Dave Lublin looked at the U.S. House and also state houses and found that this situation wasn't changing and hadn't changed for years. If the district wasn't majority-minority, a black candidate was just not getting elected. Now, you might be wondering, okay, in some districts there are almost no black people there. Why would a black person even run? How do you expect a black person to win statewide in Montana? Something like that. Fair enough. But I'm not, not even talking about those situations. Talk about districts that are 25%, 35%, up to 40-something percent minority, and black candidates in those districts have almost no chance of winning, which means that black representation overall is going to be less than what it deserves to be, 
as a percent of the population. But guess what? And this is the progress. It's not that the candidates who won call themselves progressive. It's that actual, tangible, undebatable progress has been made in that things have changed. Things have greatly changed. Because last election, the midterms, there were nine new African-American members elected to the House. And eight of them, eight of the nine, were from exactly the types of districts I'm talking about. They were districts where you couldn't win for almost all of U.S. history. So in addition to Mondaire Jones and Cameron Webb, if he should win, and all the other races that are going to occur in 2020, just in 2018, we have Colin Allred in Texas, Antonio Delgado in New York, Johanna Hayes in Connecticut, Steve Horsford in Nevada, Lucy McBath in Georgia, Joe Nagis in Colorado, Ilan Omar, Minnesota, Lauren Underwood, Illinois, Ayanna Presley, Massachusetts. Now, of course, I should say, ethnicity doesn't determine quality, doesn't define good policy. One of the members of Congress that I just listed is my favorite House freshman, and one is my least favorite freshman Democrat. But the important point is they now all have a chance to be excellent in these vital, vital positions. That they won't be denied the right to be excellent by dint of their skin. It is a very important thing. It is absolutely bonafide, undeniable progress. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly is the GIST associate producer. She's interested in Will He Go, but thought it might have been authored by an impactful husband-wife team that wrote a much-cited book from the 70s. Perhaps you know of them, Will He Make It and Betty Don't. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist. He's out with a forthcoming biography of Robert Van Winkle titled, Will It Ever Stop? Yo, I Don't Know. Joel Patterson filled in for Daniel, not just on the show, but on that Vanilla Ice bio, which he retitled, Will It Ever Stop? Indeed It Has, and for quite some time. Pre-order that on Amazon. The Gist. When the facts are on your side, pound the facts. When the law is on your side, pound the law. When Louis Gohmert is on your side, pound yourself in the face. You've made some bad life choices. Oom Peru Depuru Dupuru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>